Welcome to the Crossing Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit our website at thecrossing.cc. Thank you all. Appreciate our young folks here doing all that. Let's give them a hand for being so honoring. Good job, gang. I'll tell you, I saw some, anyway, I saw y'all dance last night or some of y'all. It was okay. No, it was good. It was good. <laughs> uh, there was a party last night. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so sorry. I've got to get all this, this good. Uh, yeah, let's be praying for the uh, Astros. I, I want to say to Julian, uh, Julian just did our, our, our transition just a second ago. Julian spoke to our men yesterday, and all of our men just received something great. I love seeing our young, godly communicators growing, and I, I just love seeing it. Can we honor Julian just for what God's doing in him? It's so good. So excited, gang, be in prayer. This is a very, very important week. I told you last uh, or two weeks ago that uh, our, the, the bank has said, look, we're ready to close, and so that's very good news, and uh, we've got some meetings with the bank and the architect this week just to, to dial in some final details, and we go with those details to the bank, and then we put this dude in the end zone. So uh, I'm excited about that, and so just be in prayer, though. Those meetings on Thursday are gonna be very, very important. And uh, so, and uh, can, can we honor Pastor Reggie and, and Ray Franklin? These guys have worked so hard. I don't know the last time you tried to borrow $13 million, but the banks are kind of touchy about that kind of thing, and they want to know a lot about you. And so, uh, Re- pa- Pastor Reggie has just, for, for really the last year, been just, just, just giving and giving and giving, and uh, we're almost where we're going to be able to you know, get signatures and get this football kick. So... I'm excited about that. You guys turn to Matthew chapter 23, and we're still in a series. And gang, this series called This is Church, uh, this is us just helping us. If you're new to the Crossing Church or if this is your first Sunday, this will help you either choose this church or find a church that has these healthy components in it. And really what I'm wanting to do is just coach us all up to understand, you know, we're going to go from here and we're going to go to where we can reach actually thousands and being a much more regional reach here in, in, in a year or so. And we need to understand what church, what are we trying to do here? Are we just kind of going through the motions? We sing a few songs. What are we trying to accomplish? Our vision is to restore every single person, to restore every person to God and to the life God created them to live. That's our overarching vision. Every time you look at any human, we believe they need to be restored to God and that God has a design on their life and we want to help them find that design so that they live the rest of their life fulfilling God, uh, God's vision for their life. Our mission, what we're trying to accomplish to make that vision happen is to help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. Everybody say, know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. Those are the things that we're paying attention to. And specifically today, I wanna talk about finding freedom. And this message is called Church, an atmosphere of freedom. Tell you a quick story. Y'all headed for, for Matthew 23, right? We're going to spend a little time uh, here. Uh, quick story, though. Uh, I grew up on a prison. I, many of you know that. And my dad was the warden. And when he was the warden, we lived on, on, well, we lived on prison housing all of my life. So I, I didn't know there was anything but red brick houses lined perfectly up like a military. And uh, all my friends wore white. So... 
Uh, we had a guy, uh, Robert Lee Robertson was uh, an inmate, and he was just part of our family, honestly. He, co- he did the cooking for uh, us when we were warden, and for, for a number of years, Robert Lee was a, a big, tall African-American man, and I remember as a kid, he had these big old guns, man. He'd put his arms down and start to talk, and all I could look at is these big, massive arms. He's just, he just, I was like, man, I want to be, be built like that. And uh, Robert was a protector, by nature, a fierce protector. He had murdered uh, somebody. He was in there for murder, and uh, it, was, it was done in an act of protecting, and I'm not trying to, to lighten what he did, but uh, Robert was part of our family. We loved him like family. He was there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. When we had Christmas, uh, there'd be all of us, and then there'd be Robert, and he, he opened gifts with us, and uh, it, we, we, I just kept asking Dad for more. Dad, let Robert do this. Let Robert. And, uh, and uh, so we loved him like family, and when Robert would come up for parole, uh, he'd go before the parole board. He did this several times. Many times the parole board turned him down uh, the parole board is who determines whether you've served enough time or whether you can get out. And uh, multiple times, uh, he went up and was turned out. We, we, we cried with him. We, we felt discouraged for him. It would take him weeks to recover from, from that. But Robert was, we loved him, bottom line. So uh, Robert paroles out, and uh, when Robert paroled out, he brought his family in plain clothes back to the rodeo, and they ate dinner with us. I mean, that's how close we were to Robert. And uh, good friend, so... Uh, I, I go on into high school. We move to another unit. Robert's out. I don't see him for four or five years. I'm driving home from high school. And when I was driving home uh, onto another unit, uh, I, I looked and saw the yard squad out there, the, the guys that were working on the, the flower beds. And there was Robert Lee after four or five years. And uh, partly I was excited. I, I pulled the car off into the grass and I go running. And Robert Lee, big Robert, looks at me. And he holds his arm out like an old, like a grandfather. Big old smile, and we hug. And uh, I'll tell you, if anybody saw that scene, they'd probably wonder, what in the world? Man, I hug Robert, say, Rob, man, we kind of kept, Robert, how are you, what in the world? And, uh, but then the awkward moment was, Robert, what'd you do? How, how'd you get back in here? And uh, he said, uh, well, 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 Randy's, I'll tell you, I told this old boy, if you mess with my niece again, I'm going to kill you. And... Uh, he said, uh, my niece come home, and she told me, uh, Uncle Robert, that old boy's messing with me again. And, and it, just, just this matter of fact, he said, so I got my gun, I got in my car, I went over there, and I killed him, and then I drove myself to the police station. And, uh, you know, and I was thinking, well, on the half-full approach to this, you're a man of your word. That's good, Robert. Uh, let's start where we can work. Um, Robert Precious... Precious guy, fierce, fierce uh, protector in, uh, to, to a fault. Here's, here's my point. Um, we talk about freedom. Uh, Robert was judicially freed by all legal, uh, all, all legal necessities. He was declared, you're free to go. Case closed. You've served your time. Robert was set free. Robert didn't know how to live free. He didn't know how to live it, walk it out as a lifestyle. He had the old old dog-eat-dog way of thinking. When we talk about freedom here, you can think, well, when I got saved, didn't everything that needed to happen happen? 
And here's what I would say. You were, you were set free from the prison. When we talk about the freedom we're talking about, your spirit, and I'll say it this way, you're a three-part being. You guys know this, right? Your spirit was made heaven-ready miraculously. You had nothing to do with it. Just when you said yes, your spirit, its new citizenship was made in heaven, irrevocable by, the, by an act that you can't do. Your spirit, all good. Your physical body, the answer to it is it's gonna be nasty and you're gonna have to deal with it until you die, but the good news about your body is you will die, it will decay, and it will be a bunch of nothing. So your spirit's handled and your body's handled. Your soul, which is your, your mind, will, and emotions, your thinking, your logic patterns and cycles, your emotional cycles, your feeling cycles, and your decision-making you know, logic and cycles, those right there... When you got saved, your spirit was made heaven ready. Those didn't change. Those have to be, your mind has to be renewed. Your thinking has to start telling your feelings that the meaning that they had, had, had assigned to those feelings, you know, there's certain feelings you have. If you've been around somebody and uh, they say something and you go, I know what they meant, and you don't even know them. And it's because you've learned to feel a certain feeling assign a meaning to it, and in your mind, this is all happening just in, in, intuitively, you just assign meaning to things. Those, those, she doesn't like me. That girl doesn't like me. I know she doesn't like me. You don't know that. You just have learned to assign feelings and assign meaning to feelings, and you could just, and, it's, and we all do it, and it's all over the board. Because our soul, again, thinking cycles, feeling cycles, decision-making all of that has to be renewed when we talk about freedom. And when I raise this topic, I feel horribly insecure. I'm dealing with some soul issues right now because the topic is so massive. I'm, I'm just going to bump it. And, and I feel bad because I can just bump it. At the first of the year, when we start our new life groups, we're going to have some freedom groups. We're going to see to it that there are some groups because you need to, it takes 12, 13, 14 weeks of going through the fears going through wounds that you got as a childhood, going through your thinking cycles, the meaning that you assign to your feelings, it takes way more than just this one Sunday. What I want to do today, though, is talk about Jesus wanted an atmosphere. He knew, you and I, all of us in this room, he knew we were going to struggle a lot with not him setting us free, but how do you walk in that freedom day to day to day to day to day? That's the point of the church. We're helping each other Learn how to do it. There are no experts on it. We are all on our way. And here's, here's what I want you to know. Everybody in the room, in fact, let me just ask you, who here has issues? Did you raise your hand? All right? Perhaps, if you didn't raise your hand, your, your, your issues are sitting beside you. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. It could be. In fact, you've always wanted to say this. Look at the person next to you and say, you got issues. Some of you were afraid. I see that. I understand. <laughs> some of you were smart. There's some wisdom in the room. Some of you didn't raise your hands, and uh, you're thinking, well, I don't have issues. This is your issue. You're in denial. So that is your issue. Everybody's, seriously, ev everybody's got issues. If you're wondering, feel right here in your tummy, and if you have a belly button, that means you came from another human. And that means you have issues. We're all a part of the Adams family. 
You ever seen the Adams Family? Yep, just like you. Uh, some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about there. You may laugh at those characters. You're one of them. We all got issues. So uh, I, th there is, uh, just very recently, I was doing some writing, went into a bookstore, uh, the Christian section of a bookstore, six or uh, hundreds and hundreds of books, and it was so clear by 90% of the titles that we, the believers, we are screaming from our soul to like ourselves. I don't like me. Just, just an amazing amount. And I think I'm being generous to say 90% of the titles that I looked at went to a Barnes and Noble. 90% of the titles, and by the way, I'm not saying this sarcastically. I did, when I first saw it, I was kind of aggravated. Like, does anybody have anything else to talk about than us? We're, we're so focused on trying to feel good about ourselves, and it's a desperate thing in the soul of humankind. We're trying to say, am I okay? God, am I okay with you? We're asking one another, am I okay with y'all? You, you're the jury. You get to say how, you know, we've got this approval addiction. So deep is the cry of the soul, and so uh, th that's the beauty of the church. I don't think it's ever been like it is, and I'll show you some reasons why today, but I want to let you know that if your soul is crying out, I know you don't come in here and tell everybody your, your business or your issues. We all put on our best face. But there is no doubt behind every very holy uh, together face, there is a complex soul with all kinds of wounds from childhood, all kinds of fears, all kinds of thinking that you are just certain that you're right on, that you're just off. It's just part of the human mayhem. And so I, I want to help us all today understand why church is important to that. When I say freedom, how, Jesus, the architect of the church, um, in Matthew 23, this is just, and again, you need weeks and weeks of it. You need seminars to really get at the, the sickness of our soul, and everybody's got it, okay? You need weeks. So I feel almost apologetic. I want to do the best I can to just push you away from shore but I want to talk about church. Jesus, the architect of the church. He's both the architect and the builder. And he, we get to look over his shoulder as he's putting a little sketch together for the church. And it has to do with freedom. And I'm going to help you understand that. All right? Everybody good? I'm going to walk in this freedom. Matthew 23. I'm going to read quite a bit out of the message. Now Jesus, uh, verse 1, turned to address the disciples along with the crowd that had gathered with him. Uh, quote, the religion, religion scholars and Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. You won't go wrong in following their teaching on Moses. What they're teaching you is good. But be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it to heart and live it out in their behaviors. It's all spit and polish veneer. Instead of giving you God's law as food and drink, which you can banquet on God, they package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help you. Their lives are perpetual fashion shows. Embroidered prayer shawls one day, flowery prayers the next they love to sit at the head table at church dinners, basking in the most prominent positions, preening in the radiance of public flattery, receiving honorary degrees, and getting called doctor and reverend. Don't let the people, don't let people do that to you that has put you on a pedestal like that. 
you all have a single teacher and you all have, and you are all classmates. In other words, you're all in this together and Jesus is the only one that leads. Don't set people up as experts over your life, letting them tell you what to do. Save that authority for God alone. Let him tell you what to do. No one else should carry the title of father. Uh, You have only one father and he's in heaven. And don't let people maneuver you into taking charge of them. There is only one life leader for you and them, and it's Christ. Do you want to stand out? Then step down. Be a servant. If you puff yourself up, you'll get the wind knocked out of you. But if you're content to simply be yourself, your life will count for plenty. Jesus, again, the architect, a lot there. What was Jesus saying about his church with regard to our freedom? The very first thing is this. Authenticity, this this message is called church is an atmosphere of freedom. Authenticity has to be in the atmosphere, being real. He's saying this. the, The people that are teaching you, what they're saying is good stuff, but how they're carrying it and what they're portraying about themselves, they act like they're like they're holy. When I went to this bookstore, and I'll just be honest, I got a lot of cynicism, and I'm still pushing and working it all out. I've been in the church too long, I think. Uh, I just get touchy about things. But I got touchy looking at these book titles that said, you know, be your best you and stop being the old you, and you can be a better you, and happiness is today, and da-da-da-da. And uh, on, on the cover of these titles... Uh, these books, there was a pit, the, the people kind of had this look like, <laughs> and, uh, and I know it's, again, it's just good marketing. I, I, I get, I, I kind of know how the whole book thing seems to work. And, and these are great people. I'm sure these are very great people. But with the title and then the picture on the front of these books, it gave the impression, you know, be, be your best you like me because I've, I've got it all together. It can give this, this sense that, and this is what Jesus was saying in the church, don't, you don't fall for that. Uh, there's plenty of people out there that look like they have it together, and we're trained in our culture to tr- do your best, spend your energy not on being something, but, 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 but by appearing to be something. Yeah. We spend way more time trying to look on the outside. We, we, we tend to fit into this category that Jesus was talking about, spit and polish on the outside, if we spend as much energy on the inside, man, I think we'd really have something. So the church is to be a place where it's safe. And what he's saying here is the atmosphere of the church needs to be honest and real. And uh, I'll give you a, an example. I grew up, uh, again, in, in a church. You'll hear me tell this story all the time. But grew up in a church, and one of the very high values of that church was holiness, personal behavioral holiness. And we were taught at it this way, that if you sin, you're going to hell. And every time you sin, if God were to come, Jesus were to come back before you could repent. Now, this is not good theology, but this is what I was taught as a child. You don't know to not believe it. It said this way, if you sin and you don't repent before Jesus comes back, then you're going to hell. And so when you sin, you had to be really nimble on your feet to go, oh, I thought that. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. And uh, so I didn't do anything with my Christian walk for 16 years but say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. All my prayer time. And I prayed a lot. I had a lot to pray about. (laughs) It was basically just one subject. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And uh, when I sat in my church as a child and I grew up all the way through my teen years, 
when my, our pastors, precious man, would stand up and say, this sin is wrong and that sin is wrong. If you don't do this and Jesus is coming soon and if you don't get your life together, you're gonna go to hell. And da, da, da. While he was doing that, all the people in the congregation were confidently going, amen, that's right, amen, hallelujah, that's right, Pentecostal church. Well, I took that, I interpreted that as them acting like, yeah, we've got it together. And I really did think, I am the worst, I am filthy and foul in this group of people that just have it all together. And we never had somebody, we would have once in a while come to the church a testimony of somebody who was filth and foul before salvation. You know, I was in a gang and I killed this many people and I had this many drugs and I went to prison and I had this, and then, you know, and I went to the movies and then I got saved. <laughs> I told you I, was, I got issues, okay. And then I got saved, and then they would say, and now look at me. Now we had those testimonies. We never had the testimony of the person that said, you know what, I got saved, and, uh, but I've been working uh, with, uh, I've got an issue, and I've been working with this alcoholism. I've been struggling against pornography. I've been, we never had any of that. I mean, that wasn't, a, and in fact, it wasn't allowed. It just wasn't allowed. Because that was so prevalent, uh, at 16 years old, and I used to, a little confession, you see, my, I've got a beautiful wife. I mean, she's like drop dead. Wow. Um, I'm telling you, from kindergarten, I liked girls. I liked them a lot. I liked them. Anyway, it was beyond holy uh, liking. Okay, so I just I liked girls. And, uh, and, and it was a struggle, especially going through the teen years here and growing up on a college town. And I remember thinking, you know, literally, I would repent you know, six, eight times a day because I'd be thinking something. Oh, oh, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. And it's just, you know. Uh. And I'm driving with a, a, a guy that was in college, and he was a pastor's son from another church, and he had come to go to college there. He and I were both bass players. We were piling around. And uh, I'm 15, 16 years old. And I think, man, I, I'm going to go to hell if I don't get this lust issue. I got lust issues, you know, because every time you think a thought, oh, God saw that. Oh. It's like, man, I can't get away with anything. Like, so I think I need to, I need, so I tell him, I say, man, I'm really struggling with lust. And uh, he's driving. He doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat. He just said, well, you and everybody else. Just like, <laughs> said, yeah, me too. I was like, what? He said, of course you're struggling with lust. You're on a college campus with 8,000 20-year-old girls. What, and you're 17 years old, of course you're struggling with lust. I was like, we talked for a while. I said, you struggle with lust? He said, of course I do. This was the first person that ever said anything like, there's two of us? Two of us are gonna be in hell? And we're both bass players. What does that say? Man, this was the first, I can't, I can't tell you how both stunned but how elated I was to go. But it, it actually created a bitterness in me against my home church because I really did. And to this day, there's times I can rev it up and go, bunch of liars. I just still want to go back to and go, all of y'all, liars. <laughs> Walk off. That's my sermon. Drop the microphone. And it was because here's the deal. When you look at everybody around you, and, and again, we're in a culture that says, look like you got it together. You don't have to have it together because we all know none of us do, but we don't want to say that. 
but look like it. When you're looking at those things on social media, you're looking at all these pictures of all of the, and, and preachers like me can get up here. Listen, don't overestimate what you're looking at up here. It ain't all that. It's plain old flesh and blood. It, it don't, you can ask my wife. <laughs> it ain't all that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very aware. In fact, of the, probably the highest value that's just instinctive to me is this. Be real. Just be real. Because healing, people, we get permission. The reason we want our church to have this authenticity, people get permission to be free when we will stop acting like we're holier than all that. I'm not saying tell everybody your business and all that, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're, he tells his disciples, don't let anybody put you in that position where you are talking down about the people that you minister to because you're not all that. Don't be arrogant. So I just I, I, I say that to you, and here's, here's the, the guy I want to talk to. Paul, uh, after 30 years, and, and I use this scripture almost every sermon. If you don't know Philippians 3 by now and you've been here more than a month, come on. So I, I use Philippians 3 all the time because I, I live off of this scripture. Paul, after 30 years of seeing Jesus, getting thousands of people saved, building lots of churches, raising up spiritual sons, writing a third of the Bible. Come on now, this guy's, a, this guy's the real deal. He says to the, these people, he says, I'm not saying, Philippians 3.12, I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have it made. But I'm well on my way, reaching for Christ, who so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal. Paul teaches good, healthy Christian living. He paints the picture and he says, do I want to be like Christ? Yes. Have I arrived? Not on your, not, absolutely not. But am I on my way? Yes. Am I where I want to be? No. Am I further than I was? Yes. Such is Christian living. No matter how you see it, who explains it to you, what you get in your brain, you never will arrive on this side of death or the return of Jesus Christ. Christian living is looking at the ideal of Jesus and sincerely being on your way. You fall, you trip, you sometimes backslide, but you get back on the road and you head that direction. Everybody tracking with me? Nobody's arrived. If you come into this church and you look around and go, everybody's holier than me. Trust me, it, look, I've, I, I counseled for years. No, they're not. Some of the people the best at projecting. I won't get into all that. So anyway, I'm just telling you, every, everybody say, I got issues. Everybody's got issues, and here's the thing. That makes you normal. That just makes you normal. Jesus Christ died to save your, your soul. Your spirit's going to heaven, and he died so that your soul can be transformed, and that's a lifelong process. Tracking? All right. We want that in the atmosphere here. So Jesus says, first of all, be authentic. Uh, secondly, uh, an atmosphere of grace, an atmosphere of grace. He talks about these uh, Pharisees who, who they were the teachers of the law. Everybody say the law. Law, that's what they knew. You and I are built for law thinking. What does law thinking mean? It means you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get good, you get bad, right? It, it means messages sound like this. God is good, you're bad, try harder. That makes sense. Law, you need to do better. This is built in us from being humans. 
when, uh, before Jesus came, we were all under this covenant of, look, God has a set of perfect laws. You do them and he'll accept you. But if you come up short, he will not accept you. And there's this enormous pressure and it's built into the human condition. Okay. This is what, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, in talking about the moral law, the moral law is that, that governor on the inside of you that says, you should do this, you shouldn't do this, you did this, you did that wrong. Everybody tracking with me? Every one of you got it. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it your oughtness, your oughtness. And he does a beautiful job. Uh, mere Christianity, all the, your oughtness. Uh, and this is what it means. You have something in you, and I do as well, that's cost, it's a courtroom, and it's always saying this, you ought to do better. You ought to read your Bible more. You ought to pray. You ought to witness to that person. You ought to call your mother. Uh, you ought not eat so much. You ought to, you ought to exercise. You, right? And here's the thing about that thing. It's natural to you, and if you don't know to interrupt the courtroom, that oughtness is just going, and it's going, and it's going. And what's happening on the inside of you right this second, there's something you ought to be doing, something you ought to be better about, uh, something you ought not be doing. And the ought meter's just ringing and ringing and ringing. He, uh, Paul goes on in uh, Romans uh, 4, and he says this. Uh, he says, the law produces wrath. The law produces wrath. What, is that, what does that mean? Romans 4, 5, and 6, but Romans 4 right there in the middle. What does that mean? It means this. Let me ask you this. You ever get mad at yourself and it's just you and you? You, you turn on you. Do you know how guilt starts to get a hold of your soul? It's because the ought meter's running. It, it's just going, ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to. Well, the things you ought to be doing that you're not doing, and there's a whole list of them, you have very few reactions. On the inside, guilty. The courtroom says guilty. Oh, I gotta try harder. I gotta work harder. Shame. After you try and try and try and try and you get older, you realize I can't do all of these things. Well, now shame, shame is not just what you ought to have done. It's like you're not just doing bad things. You're a bad person. You start to accept an identity. Shame. This stuff starts to trap you. I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking, this is just how this works. And Paul was honest enough to say, you know what? Again, 30 years a believer, I'm writing the New Testament, but I've got issues. And in Romans chapter seven, he says this, the thing I ought to do, I don't do. And the thing I ought not to do, I end up doing. And he says it eight ways from Tuesday throughout Romans chapter seven, the thing I ought to do is the thing I want to do. I end up not doing the thing I wish I, I could do, I don't do. And just back and forth and back. And he talks about the human condition being a believer, gritting our teeth, going, God, I want to please you, but I keep failing. Anybody discover, even after you got saved, you had some things get clean a little easier, but you had that one or two things that just keep hanging on. Oh, God, I told you I wouldn't do it. I promise you I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do it. Oh, I'm so sorry, but that was the last time. And eight years more and 12 years later, and it's still there. And then all of a sudden, that shame and guilt and that Here's what sets in, condemned. You know what we do with a building once a building's been uh, used and nobody's using it anymore and it's unsafe and all that, an inspector goes in and here's what he says. Either this building needs to be roped off, never to be touched again, or it needs to be brought, blown up and brought down. This building is condemned. Paul says, you know what? After you race this cycle, the ought cycle long enough, the temptation is to feel like and believe condemned 
But Romans 8, let me just read the, the end of Romans chapter 7. Are y'all with me? Okay. I'm enjoying myself. I just want to know if y'all are. End of Romans 7, 24 says this about the ought cycle. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who can free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Then he says, here's the answer. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. See you, uh, so, so you see how it is. In my mind, I really do want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. How do I live this freedom out with those two things fighting each other? He starts Romans chapter 8. So now there is no condemnation for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. What is he saying here about the no condemnation thing? He's saying, look, the courtroom is going on. You ought to, you ought to, you ought to. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. That's one of the issues I have with self-help. Uh, careful how I say this. Uh, you go into a, a bookstore, you're going to find a, a section that says self-help. I was in Barnes & Noble a lot last week. Uh, self-help. And I was in the self-help section. Uh, there's a huge section. And in the Christian reading now, uh, there's what would be categorized somewhat as Christian self-help. And I think there's probably some really great stuff in there. But here, I want you to know something. Self-help is an oxymoron. You can't help yourself. You messed yourself up. I mean, you were there the whole time. You're the messed up one. <laughs> this idea, and this is, just, this is just humanism, this idea that we're the answer for the woes that are in us, that we were born into, that somehow you can get out of what you were born into. The only way to get out of what you were born into, it isn't by telling yourself how wonderful you are. You have to be born again. There has to be an advocate enter in to your life to stop the cycle. Jesus says, the answer is Jesus Christ entering into your soul. Pastor, is this gonna happen today? No, you're gonna be learning this the rest of your life. How do I get Jesus to come in and stop this cycle of ought to, ought to, ought to? Jesus steps in when you receive Jesus and he says this, everything you ought to have done, I satisfy. You can't do it. I satisfy it. And here's what I say of your life. There is now, because I'm present, an advocate, something other than you helping you. I've stepped in, and here's what I say over your life. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. You're out of the courtroom. That whole cycle of ought to, ought to, ought to. Pastor, what do I do with that? So you, in church, you learn to call that conviction. It, it's not conviction. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, he brings a grace to change. Every time you feel guilty, I was trained that every time you felt guilty, that was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. All that was was Randy beating up Randy and agreeing with the devil and giving the Holy Spirit credit for something he wasn't even doing. And all it did was keep me trapped and in bondage because I didn't have the truth that, that, I could, that I could be set free. What I'm speaking to you today is the atmosphere in the church has to be such. You know, uh, psychology and, and uh, counseling uh, has picked up on what Jesus taught. And uh, if any of you have been through 12-step programs for alcohol addiction or uh, sex addiction or any of those uh, addictions, when you come into a session, step one of a 12-step program, you step in. I would step in and I would say, uh, hello, everybody. My name is Randy Harvey, and I'm an alcoholic. And the group would then say, 
Welcome, Randy. There's no condemnation. Here's what there's, we're all alcoholics. We're all in the same struggle as you. There's no condemnation. You know that the beginning of healing, psychology got onto it late. Jesus had it going way back. But you know the beginning of healing is to have an authority outside of yourself say, hey, there's no condemnation here. Jesus architect and designed his church so that people could walk in and they, and they could say, I, I'm messed up. I'm addicted. I'm addicted to people's opinions. I'm addicted to porn. I'm addicted to this. I, I'm messed up. And all of us could turn and say, welcome. We're messed up too. We're being healed. We're on our way. But don't, don't let any of us fake you out by how holy we look. We just know how to do church. The truth is, we're a work in progress. And we're a bigger mess than we thought. Hallelujah. Isn't that good? So that's what we want in the church. Be authentic, be real, and gang, be gracious. Be gracious. Man, if you struggle with high self-esteem, humble yourself. Now, let me get into that, actually. The, the, the last, like, pastor, what do we do? What do we do? Well, first, you need to go to a class that's about 14 weeks, and you need to go to about a three-day seminar with Henry Clout. So, but for this morning, just a step, just a step, Jesus gives the disciples one step, and that's the one I'll give you, and that's what we'll work on this week. How do you get free? How do you start to stop this soul storm of self-accusing and all that? He says, do you want to stand out, verse 11, then step down and be a servant? If you puff yourself up, you'll get the wind knocked out of you. But if you're content to simply be yourself, your life will count for plenty. Matthew 10, 39, he says it another way, and this is what I want to get at. If your first concern is to look after yourself, everybody say myself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself, if you forget about yourself and look to me, Jesus, you'll find both yourself and me. Okay, what is he saying right here? If he were standing here today, and he is, Jesus is here, he would say, gang, you've been raised in a culture and in a generation where you're obsessed with yourself. And it, you came by it innocently. You were born into this. Nobody asked this. Uh, back in the, 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 the 1990s, in fact, up until about 1990, throughout the planet, in every religion, and in all cultures, okay? This is a phenomenon. Throughout the world, since, the, his, since Adam, humility has been a virtue. In other words, consider, your, consider yourself lower. Lower yourself. In other words, uh, think less of yourself. That's always been a virtue in uh, Buddhism, uh, Muslim beliefs, Hinduism, Christianity. Think lower of yourself. And it's a worldwide accepted virtue up until about 1990. Okay? Now, before I say the next thing, remember 2 Timothy Chapter three, the scripture says, in the last days, men will be lovers of self. Lovers of self, lovers of themselves. My students, when I was a youth pastor, used to ask me, Pastor Randy, when have people not loved themselves? And I, I, I used to think, well, you know, you're kind of right. I mean, I, now I understand better. In the early 90s, some uh, psychologists in California started looking at the prison saying, you know, we found that prisoners have a lower self-esteem than people that aren't in prison. 
And we found that kids that are, are, uh, do well in school have a higher self-esteem than kids that you know, don't do as well in school. And uh, we find that kids that uh, you know, win first place in athletics feel better about themselves than those that strike out all the time. <laughs> you can call me crazy. Uh, here's what they came up with. We believe if we can raise the esteem of kids, of people, we can now empty the prisons, have successful people in business, and uh, just make a, a better mortal. And billions and billions of dollars went into school systems. All the millennials that are here, you were raised in the most unusual atmosphere of, of any group. And here was the thought. If we can, by uh, education, and they started in kindergarten with books that you opened that said, I am good, I am good, I am good, I am good, and you just repeat this stuff. I'm okay, you're okay, all that stuff that the Saturday Night Live jokes were fantastic about, but that's another story. All of the, the, high, the self-esteem craze began in the 90s, and what it was was, look, you're, whether your child is earning it or not, if you can get their esteem up, they'll be successful. And so all of these years, we've said, you know, high self-esteem is going to create all this great stuff. Well, here's what we've done. The experiment is, is at the end. The, the, uh, the, the, the studies are coming in, and here's what we understand. Uh, there's no fewer people in prison. There are more arrogant people in prison. But there, there's no fewer people in prison than there was before. Suicide rates are up. Anxiety among millennials is at an all-time high. Anxiety. These are the folks that should be feeling good about themselves because we spent our whole lives with all this brilliant science telling folks, you should feel good about yourself. I believe that when the Scripture says in the last days men will be lovers of themselves, it's talking about an obsession with self. And here's what happens. When you obsess on self, you discover all the nastiness that's there in self. It, look, so, yeah, ask this question. When you drove here today, when I drove here today, I just want you to know, my body was with me the whole time, I can just tell you. I hadn't thought about my toes until this very second. Hadn't thought about this right elbow. Hadn't thought about, the only thing I thought about is I got a little tweak in my shoulder over here. A little tweak. Soreness from working out or whatever. Uh, you know this about your body, you carry it all the time and you don't obsess over it unless something's broken, unless something hurts. Your soul is similar to your body. You don't think about it. Uh, healthy is just not thinking about it unless something's broken. And here's where we are today. We think about it 24-7. We're obsessed over it. That's all we can think about. Ata, 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 hurt, hurt, hurt. What do people think about me? High esteem. And here's, here's, here, so here's where we're at. We got a bunch of people with high self-esteem, so here's what we're saying to them. You need to have low self-esteem. Our answer for high self-esteem is this. Think less of yourself. Somebody's, you know, got a low self-esteem issue. Here's what we say. You need to think better of yourself. You need to have high, high self-esteem. We got these two options. Well, so here's, here's an option. Another option is, um, if you feel bad about yourself, lower your standards so that you can actually achieve your standards. I mean, so there's an option. Look at somebody that's in worse shape than you are. You can find them somewhere and feel good about yourself. But ultimately, when your head hits the pillow, you'll think, I'm a jerk. I have low, I have low standards. 
Oh, wretched man that I, where do we go with this? How do we get trapped in all this? We're the believers of God and we're spending all of our time trying to like ourselves. And here's who we're asking. I'm asking you, do you like me? And I'm trying to read you all the time. And you're doing the same thing. You're asking faith, they didn't like my Facebook picture. They don't like me. Ah, we got all of these comparisons to look at. Do you know what Jesus said? It's not about a high self-esteem, liking yourself more or liking yourself less. Did you hear what he said? Stop thinking about yourself. What? That's not an option. Stop thinking about yourself. Now, I know when I say this, I'm painting way off the map, pie in the sky, oh brother, oh brother idealistic Christianity. I, I get what you're thinking, and I think it too when it comes out of my mouth. Here's the deal. Jesus is telling us where to aim our life at to get free. And we can stay on a cycle of obsessing over what's right and what's wrong and who likes us and who doesn't, and here's the deal. You die, you die there. You die wondering, did anybody like me? Did I like me? Let me show you what Paul says, and then we'll bring the plane down. We'll be done. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, uh, was dealing with the thing. He's always doing something with the Corinthians church. Uh, some people were, were saying, we like Apollos, and Apollos is better than, than Peter and uh, Paul. Some were following Peter, and they said, well, he's better than... They were comparing these guys and saying, hey, we're a part of the winning fraternity in Christendom. And Paul says, you know what? I really don't care what any of y'all think. And this is his response. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 3. Paul says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you. In other words, I don't care what you think about me. Then he goes on, or by any human authority or any human court in the original language. And what he's saying is, in our culture... We're all in a courtroom and we're judging whether we like or how valuable somebody is. We're all making these you ought to be, you ought to be about everybody. And we're all asking each other, would you affirm me? Would you affirm me? And it's just chaos. And Paul's saying, you know where I've come to? I don't really care how you evaluate me or any court, any group of people who say that I should be better than Apollos. I don't care about any of that. That's not what I go to bed thinking about. And then he goes on to say, I don't even trust my own judgment on this. Not only do I not care what you say about me, I don't care what I say about me. Oh my gosh, where are we going with this? My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove anything. I don't even look at my conscience to go, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about me today. He said, I've singled it out, and here's where I'm thinking. It's the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. I'm not asking the audience to affirm me so I can have a higher self-esteem. In fact, I'm not even setting up, dreaming up things about myself going, you know, I think I had a pretty good day. I don't even trust that. In fact, even when my conscience is clear, I don't even value that. I have set my sights on this one thing. What has Jesus said about me? I'm aimed at that. Jesus said it this way. Get your eyes off yourself start work, walking into conversations, not looking for if they like you, if they're approving, or if they're meeting your needs, and just start meeting their needs, and you're gonna grow. 
Step one, tiny little baby step, yes. But here's the picture. It sounds pie in the sky, I get it, I get it. That we would be in a culture like ours and not just be obsessing over, did they like me, did they like my Facebook, all that turmoil. Wouldn't you like to get off of that? And Paul just says this, y'all keep up with that courtroom, just keep the court going. I'm not gonna be judged by you, myself, or anybody but Jesus. I'm leaving the whole court system. I'm out. Y'all wanna get crazy? Do it. I'm out. I can't live this way, driving myself crazy and y'all driving me crazy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look to Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. Again, what you ought to be doing, I did. There's no condemnation for you. The only relationship that starts with a verdict the only one that starts with the conclusion about who you are is our relationship with Jesus. He starts before you do something right, wrong, ought to have, ought not to have. He, he just bypasses all that. And he says this, I made you. I know who you are. I know what you're going to be when I'm done with you. And I'm going to relate to you as the perfect creation I made you to be. Stop spending all your time apologizing for being alive and stop begging everybody around you to affirm you. I have affirmed you. Walk in the confidence of that. Not arrogantly and not beating yourself up. Just, just stop. Just, just stop. <laughs> and start living to serve other people. I got two men in my life, dear friends that I've watched for many years. Because I was trying to think, do I know anybody that's doing this pretty good? I actually know some people that every time they walk into a, 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 a group of people, I've never heard them say, let me tell you how I feel. Can somebody help me with how I feel? And, and there's times you need that. But these two men I consider very strong, not because they've led great events, but because they don't come in as takers into relationships. They just give. They encourage. They affirm. Here's, here's, here's your step this week. Here's your step this week. Jesus said you could do it, so there must be a grace to do it. I want you to get up tomorrow morning and say, God, lead me to somebody. And help, help me not to be begging from the inside. Please like me. Please affirm me. Please say something good to me. Help me to break that cycle. Come break that cycle. I want to walk into lives and just begin to be the answer to what they're praying about. I want to encourage. I want to bless. I want to point out what God's doing right in their life and not all that's going wrong. I want to be that guy that doesn't come in taking and looking for affirmation from everybody Not when we need it. But just take a baby step this week. Could you do that? I'm serious about this. I think we can get better. We got a long way to go. I did. I got a long way to go. But I think we can get better. Right? When we open new stuff in the first of the year, go through the 14 weeks or 15 or 20 or however long. But for right now, let's take a baby step. And as a church, when people come in here, let's let people know you're in the right place, nothing but plain old humans, depending on the same amount of blood to save me as it did you, and uh, God's at work at me. Can we do that as a church? Why don't you stand to your feet like prayer teams to come to the front? And Lord Jesus, above all things, before we can even start, we need to be declared free, which is by receiving you into our lives. I'd like all heads bowed and all eyes closed. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as Savior, just to get started, he died for you 
so that you would have a way to get back to God and bring your life humbly back to God. And salvation is you determining, I, I, wanna, I wanna be right with you, God. I wanna give you my life. It's not about what he can do for you. He's not a divine Santa Claus that's gonna make all this great stuff happen. He's capable, he can't promise that. The issue is you're in contempt of God right now. You're in contempt of God until he and his blood is shed for you and you're forgiven. You're a thief, you're withholding you from him. That's what we gotta rectify at salvation. So Holy Spirit, would you come and begin to bring very true conviction, the grace that says, let me help you feel what you need to feel so you can realize you're guilty before God. Lord, would you awaken our need for a savior? It didn't make our lives better so much as it is just to, to, to save our life, to save our eternity. Lord, we're in need of a savior. Lord Jesus, we need you. Thank you that you're working in lives right now. I'm gonna say a line, the whole church will say a line, and if you've never given your life to Christ today, by saying this prayer and meaning it, today you start your walk with Christ. Everybody praying after me. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner, and I've sinned against you. I'm fully responsible. Please forgive me. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He lived for me, he bled for me, and he died for me to pay for my sin, to take my punishment so I could be saved. I believe you raised him from the dead, and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Do anything you want with my life. I'm all yours. Jesus name. Thank you. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Gang, if you just prayed that prayer, uh, first of all, would, would you, if you just prayed that prayer, would you lift your hand just very boldly just to say, I just gave my life to Christ. That's great. That's great. That's great. Everybody eyeballs up here just so. If you did pray that prayer and you gave your life to Christ, there's a, there's a card in the chair in front of you that says, I said yes. Would you fill that card out and drop it at the desk out there? And also, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have baptisms. Your next step is water baptism. It isn't, just, it isn't just symbolic. There is a spiritual thing that happens between you and God. It's not your salvation. You just got saved. But it's, it's your way of saying to God, I am a disciple, I'm a follower, and what disciples do is they obey. They obey. And this is a spiritual act on your part, and so in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have baptisms. Would you call the office there and get signed up for that? And uh, it, it'll be an awesome, awesome, day for you. All right. Uh, let me pray for the rest of you. At the end of this, if you've got need for prayer for anything under the sun, uh, and especially I would say this, if you are struggling with things in your soul, not a human in here that isn't, but you'd say, I am, I, I've, I need help here. Would you come up and let these folks pray with you and agree with you? Trust that the Holy Spirit might speak through them because we got, we got to help each other, right? That's what church is. So when I conclude here, come up here and let these precious folks pray for you. Let me bless your finances. Father, our last act of worship is to bring our tithe, our offerings, and all of those gifts. Thank you that we're in covenant with you. And over the Crossing Church, thank you that you are providing through this group of people all that we need to do kingdom work, to do missions work, and to build this building, to get moving forward. And I thank you that your blessing is there as well. 
I know that a whole lot of anxiety and worry and a whole lot of laying awake at night happens over fear and anxiety over finances. So I speak to that and I ask God in Jesus' name, thank you that you've given us a way to say, God, I trust you with our finances. I trust you with them. And it's by giving. And so today, Lord, as we bring tithe, as we bring gifts, as we bring things toward missions, as we bring our gifts, thank you, Lord God, that you are seeing that. And thank you that a promise accompanies that obedience, Lord, that you would open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing we cannot contain. Thank you, Lord, that our finances are secure as we entrust them to you. Bless the finances. Thank you, Lord God, for this great church. And thank you for what you have in our future. I bless this church in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Find more of our podcasts on iTunes or in our audio library at thecrossing.cc.